0: Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband, or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach, or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits, and learning of great leaders, C suite executives authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. So you join me on location today in London with best-selling author of two books, Turn the Ship Around and Leadership as Language, David Marquet. Really looking forward to speaking to David today, but before we do, it's the Leadership Hacker News. This year, 50 years ago, in 1970, an onboard explosion crippled Apollo 13 spacecraft. The surface module was damaged forcing the ground crew and astronauts to abandon their original mission of landing on the moon. Now most of you will be familiar with the story portrayed in 1995 movie with Tom Hanks, but less of you will know the leadership activity that has really stood this mission aside from others that NASA run. The debriefing sheet cited a successful return of the crew down to the importance of organisation leadership and innovation as part of NASA's operations, and remains one of the best examples of that trade to this day. On April 11th 1970, the Apollo 13 mission blasted off from Cape Canaveral, headed towards the Fra Mauro formation, which has a number of meteor craters. Not long after liftoff, the mission suffered its first problem, a shutdown of one of the main engines. But with four main engines still working and firing, the spaceship was able to make its way into space. 200,000 miles and two days later, whilst getting ready for their moonshot, a short in a wire between the oxygen and hydrogen tanks on board the ship caused the explosion to the service module. With oxygen running out fast, the crew had to shut down their fuel cells to save power and use the lunar module to survive in. They then used this as a vessel to get them home. As directed and coached from Mission Control on Earth, the crew used the pull of the moon's gravity to break back into the atmosphere and get back to Earth safely, despite observers watching the inferno-engulfed craft plunge into the sea. Mission Control was led by Flight Director Gene Krantz. He coined the phrase, failure is not an option. And when interviewed, he said the rescue was executed calmly and deftly, without any doubts that it would succeed. However, the Mission Control logs say something else. When the Apollo 13 crew got into difficulty the 20 plus mission control team had no idea what had happened. Was it a meteorite blast? Was it an explosion? And in their panic they looked to Krantz for orders who whilst under fire of questions and pressure remained calm. And when those about him started to lose structure and discipline Gene Krantz kept his head. Krantz was ahead of his time as a leader but few at that time in the military would have recognized that calm Lack of instant order would have been leadership. Kranz's calmness was a barometer for others which steadied the mission control room much quicker than it would have done had he added loads more commands on top. During an hour of asking questions and evaluating the situation, Kranz was running low on energy and ideas. He recognised that he didn't have all the answers and needed to unlock that from those who did. So what did he do? He gave control to the incoming team He knew they had the information and therefore merely moved the authority to where the information was. He empowered junior officers to take control. He empowered others in his mission control room to think differently. Great leaders create more leaders. They give control to others who are better placed. And I've often said that if you're a leader, you should only control only what you can control. And someone who's epitomized this through their work and now their life as a leadership coach is David Marquet. David Marquet was the commander of the nuclear submarine Santa Fe and realized during a simple drill having one point of command was not only limiting to the efficiency of the operations of the submarine, it was downright dangerous. David's gone on to write the best-selling book Turn the Ship Around and he's also now the best-selling author of Leadership is Language. And now David is also the president of the Intent-Based Leadership Institute. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve, for having me on your show. It's uh, absolutely my pleasure. I've been a a fan of your work for some time, so, so I appreciate you taking some time out in your busy schedule to be with us too. So, David, I know that you spent 28 years in the U.S. Navy, and that's obviously where you developed your your leadership theories and your your thinking yeah but it started much younger for you didn't it when you were spending some time with your grandparents back in pittsburgh
1: well i was sort of this uh library kid i was an introvert and my parents shipped me off to my grandparents in the summer and pittsburgh which was this industrial town it was a steel making town and uh it it really wasn't a lot of fun, right? They lived in sort of this urban area, and but there was a library nearby, so I would kind of scoot out and go hide in the library and do all this reading. And I read about I liked history books. So I would read all these history books, and I read about submarines and the role that they played in World War II. And at the same time, the country was going through. This was the '70s, so the country was going through this. The sort of malaise and depression of uh, it doesn't seem like things are going right, inflation was bad, oil shocks were there, Iranians uh, had taken our Americans hostage, you couldn't get them back, blah, 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 we're in the Cold War, and all these things kind of gelled together for me, and even though I was probably an unlikely candidate to join the military, I was born in Berkeley, California a hotbed of radicalisms, yep. and uh, I told my parents that's what I was going to do, and uh, of course they um, tried to hide their, uh, <laughs> well, they were worried for me, I think, a little bit, because I was kind of a sensitive introvert, but uh, submarine force worked out well, because you hide
0: from people there, so it's a, it was, it's a natural fit for introverts. So how do you go from being introverted to them being a U.S. captain of a nuclear submarine? Oh, you can be an introvert on this beast. In fact, I think it's a benefit because some
1: of the extroverts I knew, they sort of got away with just this sort of grand personality. And yeah. I was forced to really be thoughtful about what I said. I didn't like to speak. So yeah. I would say as few words as possible, but I felt they were quality <laughs> words. And the idea is, I, but my burden was I thought I was really smart because everyone was telling me that at every step yeah. of, every, and I was on the math team when I was in high school. And so there was a sense that I, I knew the answer and it fed this structure of leadership where leader as decision-maker, and it got me promoted. And it probably is the right place to be when I was starting out. But as submarine commander, the complexity of the ship um, foiled that aspect uh, of what I wanted to be. It's psychologically very seductive. You make decisions, people line up outside your door all day long, it feels good. But it's really depleting. It's very short-term, it's a short-term win. It's like eating cotton candy is a high, and then it just feels after that. And that was the change I had to go through.
0: And would you say that your introversion was almost a a propeller for you to start giving control to other leaders?
1: Uh, It was an enabler, but it wasn't the catalyst. The catalyst was I screwed up. I gave an order that couldn't be done on my ship. So the, the story is I was trained. Uh, for 12 months to go to one submarine. At the very last minute, they said, no, no, you got to go to this other one, Santa Fe, because it was the worst performing ship in the fleet. The captain has quit. And so we need someone over there in two weeks. It's you. And I was uh, just unbelievably despondent over this news because the Santa Fe was had this reputation of being the clown ship. It was terrible. And it was a different kind of submarine. That was the kicker. So The patterns, captains give orders, crew follow them, was what we fell into. But it it immediately broke apart. It it fell apart because I can't, you can't give orders. You don't know the details of the ship. It didn't work. Uh, But I tried to, and it kind of came to light in sort of this very stark event and uh, where I embarrassed myself by giving an order that couldn't be done. And I got the team together. Two things, number one is In the past, I said, you know, I got to give better orders. That's the problem. You give a bad order, you go, you chide yourself. You say, "I got to give." But now it's like, no, I got to stop giving orders. It's me giving orders that's the problem. Well, not the fact that it was bad. And then the second thing was, I wanted to tell the team, "Oh, you guys be proactive. You guys be take initiative." But it's really you. You can only change your own behavior, and so.
0: And what was the aha moment for you when you realized that you needed to change that
1: behavior? That was just when I gave this order, and, the, and I saw. I suggested to the officer, "Hey, let's go and speed up on the backup." But like we were on, we were running on backup because the uh, we had shut down a reactor for an exercise on ourselves. And I said, "Let's uh, let's speed up," and and he orders it second gear, and the sailor just kind of turns around in his chair and he looks with this quizzical look, like you guys are idiots, look. And I said, "What?" He says, "There's no." On the Santa Fe, it's a one speed motor, no second gear. And I look at the officer and I said, did you know? He said, "Uh, yes, sir. (laughs) And he gives me this like really annoying smile. And I'm like, why did you? But we all know it's because you you do what you're told. That's how it is. Yeah, we we do the same thing everyone else does, which is like, I call it sprinkling the fairy dust of empowerment, but we don't really mean it because it's not structurally embedded in the organization. I'm going to tell you what you do, but fairy dust, speak up if you think it's wrong. This makes it hard to speak up.
0: What do you think it causes people not to speak up in that environment, given your experiences?
1: Why? Yeah. Because you've corrected speed barriers. Uh, Because the... Sometimes it's very subtle. So, for example... Let's say you you have a, you raise your hand and I say what do you, what is it? Uh, it sends a signal. You're really annoying us for slowing the thing down. We also have inherited from the industrial age this idea of obeying the clock and continuing the production line as long as possible. So that, in that environment, anyone who stops the production line. Is a problem. They're creating waste because they have idle time, and so there are huge cultural barriers. And the team doesn't have the tool. We actually don't have language from in many teams for what to say to stop the clock. To what we're in a meeting and we say, "Oh, well, everyone has a chance to speak up," but we don't practice. Okay, if you have, if you don't agree with this, how do you voice that? And then. Even better, the way we run the meeting is don't talk about it and then vote. Vote and then talk about it. Because as soon as you start talking about it, you're narrowing variability and diversity of thought. So the structures the structure and the language are designed to reduce variability and, and run away from uncertainty as quickly as possible, even though it's premature in many cases.
0: And, and, and it's indicative, isn't it, of that kind of whole leader-follower philosophy that you might have experienced it in your early career in the Navy.
1: So we have words. The industrial age organization design was this. One group of people will make decisions and one group of people will execute the decisions made by the first group of people. And we have labels because they all look like humans, but we need to know which tribe you're in. And we call them leaders and followers, or thinkers and doers, or management and workers. And we pay the people by salary or by hourly. And we white-collar, blue-collar. We wear different uniforms. But there's this whole cultural uh, industry with artifacts and rituals to, to put us in one of these two groups and this is one of the this is one of the things that is subtly embedded in our language and in modern organization design which is totally
0: unhelpful. Yeah, and you talk about this in your new book Leadership is Language. Yeah. Uh, and you 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 give the the types of behaviors colors, don't you? Just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh
1: As an author, you have to create a new term. No one gets credit for just, there's a bunch of great ideas. Aristotle said everything. Let me reiterate them. Uh, But so, So I call them red work and blue work. So the doing work is what we call red work. Red being typically the color of focus and action and blue work is the color of creativity. And the difference is in red work, I want to narrow my perspective, but in blue work, I want to broaden my perspective. So I'm using my brain in two fundamentally different ways. And the industrial organizations solve the problem by not asking people to change. The thinkers were just do thinking and the doers just did doing, and we didn't need the thinkers to do doing and the doers to do thinking. But now, the doer, we say, let the doers be the deciders. So what we're going to do is say, This group of the organization at the bottom, who used to just do what they're told, we're now going to pause and give them the chance to think and actually make decisions. But that requires them to use their brain in a different way. It requires us, if we're in the leading group, to to talk in a different way.
0: And as leaders, it's our responsibility, isn't it? Because I guess through our language, we'll influence and either help new ideas and creativity or we'll stifle them.
1: you can only control yourself. So when you say, oh, well, this person doesn't speak up, it's really frustrating working with them. The, the unhelpful behaviors that go give them a lecture. Oh, can I give you some feedback? I.e., can I get permission to be a jerk? You really need to speak up more. Well, how about this? How about you look inside yourself and you figure out, you know what, the way we're running the meeting, the way I'm asking the questions, if I say, if someone comes to me and says, Well, I'm not sure about this decision, and I say, Well, why like why would you say that? Again, subtle, but it sends a signal, you're wrong. Justify yourself, not, oh, tell me about that. I'm really interested in that. We really need to know before we go ahead and launch this product if, if you think we're off track.
0: And one, I guess, creates a coaching culture as well, doesn't it? So the more questions you ask, the more evidence yeah. and insights you have from people to develop thinking and ideas, right?
1: Yeah, so it's it's dicey because I I do think that teaching isn't telling, and we can take moments to to teach people. Uh I think what happens is Leaders don't do the hard work of building a decision-making factory, building, putting structures in the team so that when the team has to make a decision, or, or a, a person who owns a decision, that the decision is going to consistently come out a quality decision. I.e., it's going to be a, help the organization do something and learn something. And so if you don't do that, then what happens is I'm getting sucked into being the decision maker all the time. That's then evaluate and approve all these decisions. So what, what I think you want to do, if you want to be a leader, is to build a decision-making factory.
0: I like that. So when you, if you could imagine what this decision-making factory would look like, just describe that for our listeners.
1: Well, that's, that's pretty much the whole book is about because... So the question is, when do teams and people make bad decisions? And so we look at some industrial accidents and what are the conditions? And it turns out that basically the overall pattern is we're adapting this industrial age playbook where we're trying to narrow variability. So the the problem is we use a reduced variability language. To embrace variability game. So one of the stories in the book is there's a ship in 2015, sails into a hurricane, sinks, all 33 people die. Well, all the matter equipment, this is a ship that's 790 feet long. How did that happen? Well, fortunately, we were able to recover the black box, and so we have a 500-page transcript. And it's the way teams talk for real, not how we wish they talk or want or some fantasy mm-hmm. world of how they talk, but it's, it's the actual language. Now, what you see is all the behaviors that I saw in the Navy. And to go back later and say, well, no, they're just bad people there. Oh, so they've been merchant mariners for 30 years. Most of them were in the, the senior people were in their 50s. And they were promoted over the last 30 years based on a set of behaviors that they exhibited. Those behaviors they exhibited over the last 30 years are exactly the behaviors they're exhibiting on this tape. So it's not them. It's, it's good people, but with the wrong playbook. And it's a playbook that excludes variability. So when there's a moment when two officers, separated by two hours, they're coming up to a point where they can turn away from the storm and go behind the Bahamas. And it's this very halting, stilted, uh, painful anguished yeah. language right and 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 blaming them is wrong it's the, because the question is why is the language like that and and if you go back earlier we can see the playbook of continue at all costs uh don't stop because de- deviating will take longer'll burn more fuel
0: and in, in my experience of coaching leaders as well It's that being brave to try new things, to test new things that really, we get to learn about ourselves. And in in your kind of experience of working with others and other leaders as well as working in the Navy, what would you say would be the one thing that you've learned the most about being brave and trying new things?
1: Being brave and trying new things comes first and foremost from a place of security and safety. If you don't feel secure and safe, At the extreme, if you have a lion running at you, you can run in in a different direction maybe. But if you don't feel secure and safe, then you're always in a constant, I'm proving myself mode. And that gets in the way of running experiments and being a little bit playful and trying some different things. If you're on a rugby team and you feel we have to win every game, then you're not going to be able to run uh, you're not going to be able to try different things you can try different combinations of players right as a and then when you get to the final tournament you'll have just done what you did versus another team which maybe took some more they will know better there may be a sl- there may be a better way of setting up your players but you will never know it but it might be worse so if you try it and then you lose one game how do you respond to that oh my gosh, everyone killed themselves, it's so dreadful. Like, no. Yeah.
0: So across your your new playbook, you've got six plays that you refer to. Yeah. And there's some really intriguing things in there. Uh, You have a a principle in there called Complete Not to Continue. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: So in the industrial age, imagine you're on an assembly line making cars. Uh, So there's a cost to tooling the assembly line once the deciders... figured out the quote optimal way or an optimal way where you want we don't want downtime just keep going make and so every day feels like the next and there's never a moment to pause and celebrate and there's never a moment to reflect on our is making cars the right thing is making internal combustion so like why did he, why did Elon Musk have to come from left field to build the viable electric car. Yeah, I know there were some electric cars in the traditional auto industry, but they really never did anything. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's because we just continue. We make cars with four wheels and internal combustion engines, And so there's just not pause and reflect if there's no complete. There's no pause and reflect. So what we want to do is say, you want to treat strategy like a hypothesis. Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do it for five years. We know the world's going to change. I mean, 200 years from now, well, who knows?
0: So now is isn't habits though, good for discipline and creating that routine and consistency.
1: Yeah, so when you do your thing, get into the habit. So for example, let's say, I start a yoga program. I like to do uh, a 20-minute yoga program in the morning. I say, well, I don't know how I'm gonna feel about it, but I don't just thinking about it, it's not gonna answer the question. I have to actually do it. I can't just do it twice. Okay, so let's do it. I'm gonna do it for a hundred days in a row. Then I can make, then I can ask my wife, hey, do I seem calmer? Do I feel more in control of my life? how how do I feel about, about this? Is it worth the extra 20 minutes that happens in the morning, which is a busy time for most people. But you you, you don't want to do, two, two mistakes I see. One is I'm gonna do it twice and then I'm gonna evaluate it. And the other mistake is, yeah, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna start doing yoga and you don't put an end point and then it's just forever and then it feels heavy and burdensome.
0: So the uh, other, one of the six plays that really intrigued me, and also something I experience a lot uh, too in in my world, is that people seem to shy away from emotion, but it's emotion what really drives behavior, right? For people to make decisions, all decisions are emotional. All decisions,
1: we can do all the rational work we want, but at the end of the day, they are gonna pass through a little emotional circuitry in our brain, and and you know this, who am I marrying? Where am I living? Which house am I going to 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 rent it's it always at the end says, yeah, the spreadsheet says this, but I just I can
0: see us living here. yeah people want more sure than not sure, don't they in their world too
1: well, they want certainty, but i I, I think there's an emotional component yeah. to decision well, we know it i I don't think it we know it from science, and so hell if you want. So in the past I didn't care about your emotions because you were just a doer and I didn't need you to be self-reflective. So I didn't if you had a screwed up emotional life it didn't cost me anything. But if you but first of all that's immoral. But the second thing is if you want to get the doers let the doers be the deciders which is going to be better for you, the company and the people who are doing the work then we, we have to have healthy emotions. And healthy emotions only come from being feeling like a human being. And yeah. so this, that's why the last play is connect. And it kind of underpins everything. That this idea that until you feel a sense of connection, I don't need to agree. The connection is not uh, a trivial, um, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And, and, and it's not, I agree with everything that you say. I don't want everyone from one party in one. Company, I would definitely not work. I would violate the diversity thing. But connection is—I actually give a shit about you at a deep, well, meaningful level. Right? I want you to be successful in your life, and because once you have that, if I need to go to you and say, "You kind of showed up like a jerk in that meeting," it doesn't sting. If I, if I deepen my heart, I, I believe and I feel that. You you really love me and you want me yeah. to succeed and I want the same for you. So it comes across as an embrace, not a stick in the eye.
0: Really powerful, isn't it? Really emotional too when you make that connection. That yeah, and
1: it. listen to me. I'm a submarine commander. That's the last place you find emotions. Did <laughs> had had that change though when you were, were on board the Santa Fe? Yeah, thing? I think we did. I, if you asked me on my last day, I would say, oh yeah, we did really, really well. We made such a big change. I think now...
0: We, we made a change and we did well, but I think there's so much more we could do. And uh, in talking about emotional connections whilst on board the Santa Fe, not many of our listeners might know this, uh, but Stephen R. Covey, the famous author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, spent some time with you on board the ship, right?
1: Yeah, and that was a magic day. His, uh, his book had a huge impact on me and my life, and he helped me understand uh, what we were actually doing by putting it into words, and I was very sad when and, uh, and he passed away a, a couple of
0: years ago. Sure, and he he cited you actually as being partly responsible for his eighth habit, and I, and I think I just wondered how that felt when that you'd heard that words from somebody with uh, such a broad experience at that time.
1: Well, that was amazing, and he, when he was on the ship. He said, this is amazing. It's the most empowering place I've ever seen. And I'm going to write about you in my next book. And i was like, sure, sure, right." And then sure enough, you know, a couple of years later, he goes with this big box of books. And I'm like, no
0: way. So and did that inspire you somewhat to to put pen to paper yourself? He told me he made it here. Yeah. yeah. Plus, my wife told me
1: <laughs> I needed to do it because I was. Uh, after I left the Navy, I. I really wanted to tell the story, not like here we were, how great we were, how great was I, but by doing this, we ended up creating so many more leaders, which, and then they've gone out and had
0: much better lives. That's great news, it's awesome stuff. And Dave, just to finish it off, could you just give us your top leadership hacks?
1: Steve, my top leadership hack, start your question with how. How sure are you, not are you sure?
0: When you're running a meeting, a decision meeting, vote first, then discuss. David, thanks ever so much for spending time with me. Really grateful. Good luck with Leadership is Language. Thanks,
1: Steve, for coming into town and doing this in person.
0: You're very welcome. Cheers. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about David and what he's up to at the moment, check that out in our show notes, but also head over to davidmarquet.com and Intent Based Institute. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event or you would like to sponsor an episode please connect with us via our social media and you can do that by following and liking our pages on twitter and facebook our handle there is at leadership hacker instagram you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker and at youtube we're just leadership hacker so that's me signing off i'm steve rush and i've been the leadership hacker